This last week at youth group, uh, we were looking at one of Jesus' parables. It's uh, a man who found a treasure in a field, and I told them the story. It applies to uh, this Sunday morning's text in the life of Moses as well. Have you ever seen something so captivating you were just drawn to it? You had to move towards it. Today, Moses is going to see a burning bush. But when I was about 13 years old, we lived over by Zintel Canyon in Kennewick. And um, it was pretty rugged. There wasn't all the walking trails that there are now uh, there. Um, And uh, we were on one side of Zintel Canyon. And on the other side, kind of on the side of the hill, we saw a treasure chest. I mean, we were sure it had been dropped out of a pirate ship at some point. Uh, years ago, uh, there was a treasure chest sitting on the other side, and it captivated our imagination. I mean, uh, I think we were supposed to be home like an hour later, uh, but it took three hours to hack through the weeds and briars and trees to get to the far side uh, to this treasure chest. All the while, I am imagining what we're going to find when we open up this thing. We're talking about it. I mean, we're going to be rich, and who knows what could be in that thing. And as we approach the treasure chest, uh, we realize it is a broken microwave that someone had thrown over (laughs) the side of the cliff to get rid of. Um, We got home, and we were probably in trouble because we were so late getting home. But have you ever seen something so captivating? It's like, I just have to get to that, and our imagination runs wild. Today, we continue our series in the life of Moses. I do want to know, did you open the microwave? (laughs) (laughs) I'll bet you we did. I don't remember. That's a good question. I'll bet you we did. Who knows? So, The Life of Moses, um, we started this a few weeks ago. And so far, we've talked about how God used some the actions of some courageous, clever women to save Moses as a baby. And he, as a Hebrew, grew up in the Pharaoh's house and how unique that was and how God orchestrated that. And then when Moses grows up, he sees an Egyptian beating a Hebrew and he kills the Egyptian and hides it, but that's discovered. And so the Pharaoh tries to kill him and he flees to Midian. And that's what we talked about last week. And um, in the end, when he get, gets to Midian, he helps out some shepherd women, and he ends up marrying one of them and becoming a shepherd and working for his father-in-law in Midian. All right, so we'll pick up the text in Exodus chapter 3, uh, verse 1. Now Moses was tending the flock of Jethro, his father-in-law, the priest of Midian, and he led the flock to the far side of the wilderness and came to Horeb, the mountain of God. So he goes from being one of the princes of Egypt to an isolated shepherd in the desert. It's spending lots of time alone by himself with this flock of sheep. As historians look back on Moses's life, they often separate it into thirds. So the first 40 years of his life, he grew up in Egypt. The second 40 years of his life, he was a shepherd in the wilderness, and then the last 40 years of his life, they lived longer back then, the last 40 years of his life, he was the leader of the Egyptian people. Israelite people. Israelite people. That's a pretty Leading the Israelites detail. out of Egypt, absolutely. Yeah, you know, I can only imagine how this season changed him. His life broken up into these three 40-year periods. The first 40, like Sarah says, in the house of Pharaoh with all sorts of luxury and and uh, probably confusion about identity and, and all the things that that entails. And now 40 years in the desert. 
Uh, Often his closest companions are the sheep that he's tending to, the flock that he's tending to. For 40 years he's in the desert. Now, throughout Scripture, time spent in the desert is often um, alluding to a season of transformation or change. You'll remember Jesus, 40 days in the desert. Throughout Scripture, we'll see people going into the desert. And it also, it, it often represents a season in which major change is coming about. God is doing transformative work in the lives of people who are preparing them for a next step in their journey. And so the story continues in verse 3, Exodus 3, verse 2. There the angel of the Lord appeared to him in flames of fire from within a bush. Moses saw that though the bush was on fire, it did not burn up. So Moses thought, I will go over and see this strange sight, why the bush does not burn up. When the Lord saw that he had gone over to look, God called to him from the bush, Moses, Moses. And Moses said, here I am. Do not come any closer, God said. Take off your sandals for the place where you are standing is holy ground. Then he said, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. At this, Moses hid his face because he was afraid to look at God. Forty years in the desert, and then God appears to Moses. After all the experiences of his life at some 80 years old, God now appears to him, and he's about to say, I have a great purpose for you. But first he says, take off your sandals, because the ground you're standing on is holy ground. We had an interesting conversation this week about, well, really, all ground is holy ground. Uh, And yet, this is a special place and time. God identifies for Moses, uh, this is a holy place and time. And and, and the word here uh, in the Hebrew simply means set apart. This space is set apart for my calling for a unique purpose. Uh, this is also foreshadowing uh, because Moses is on Mount Horeb, which is also called Mount Sinai. After leading the Israelite people out of Egypt, they're going to come to this mountain and they're going to recommit to their covenant with God. They're going to receive the Ten Commandments. So here at this same mountain, Moses sees this burning bush, encounters God, who says, this place is set apart. This is the mountain of God. This place is set apart for a special purpose, and God's going to go on then to call him. I think it's interesting as as Moses is meeting God here in this very miraculous, supernatural way, um, the, the text says, at this, Moses hid his face because he was afraid to look at God. He was afraid. His natural reaction was to hide his face. And it was a common belief that if you saw God, you would die. So in that sense, it it makes a lot of sense. But it's interesting to me because Moses is later described as the prophet whom God knew face to face. And this face to face phrase is an idiom that describes a close relationship. And Moses's relationship with God will continue to mature and change and deepen as he leads the people out of Egypt. Later on in his life, he will see, uh, it's an interesting story, we'll probably talk about it, he'll see the goodness or the glory of God. And, and it's so interesting to me because there's a recognition here that God is divine, that God is holy, and we're not as people. We're, we're not whole, divine and holy the way God is. And yet God wants to know us, and God wants us to know him. And I think this is just a beautiful, beautiful 
um, description of that, that what's going to transpire here, Moses is going to come to know God in that way. So God meets Moses on holy ground for this purpose. Verse 7, the Lord said, I have indeed seen the misery of my people in Egypt. I have heard them crying out because of their slave drivers, and I am concerned about their suffering. So I have come down to rescue them from the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them up out of the land into a good and spacious land, a land flowing with milk and honey, the home of the Canaanites, Hittites, Amites, Amorites, Perizzites, Hivites and Jebusites. And now the cry of the Israelites has reached me, and I have seen the way the Egyptians are oppressing them. So now go, I am sending you to Pharaoh to bring my people, the Israelites, out of Egypt. So God states clearly his purpose for Moses. I have seen, and I have heard, and I am concerned, so I will rescue my people. And that's really great. But when I read that text, my first question is, why did it take so long? Like they were there 400 years. And so there's no easy answer to that. In fact, I have a lot more questions around this than I have answers. But there's this really interesting um, passage, a description of, of God's conversation with Abram in Genesis 15, when God is making or developing his covenant with Abram, also, who will later be called Abraham. So I want to read that for us. Genesis 15, verses 12 through 16. As the sun was setting, Abram fell into a deep sleep, and a thick and dreadful darkness came over him. Then the Lord said to him, Know for certain that for 400 years your descendants will be strangers in a country not their own, and that they will be enslaved and mistreated there. But I will punish the nation they serve as slaves, and after afterwards they will come out with great possessions. You, however, will go to your ancestors in peace and be buried at a good old age. In the fourth generation, your descendants will come back here, for the sin of the Amorites has not yet reached its full full measure. So, um, God had spoken to Abraham, right, the, the, the father of the nation of Israel, and he had laid out for him what will happen, the season of slavery and then bringing them out. There's some really challenging things in here um, that uh, I don't have full answers for. Um, some incredible, challenging <laughs> concepts of divine retribution, of punishment against the Egyptians, the plagues that we'll see in a number of weeks, and then eventually the conquering of the land of Canaan. So I just want to acknowledge in the text here that if some of these concepts are uncomfortable or challenging, uh, you're not alone in that. We have questions around those. God, why? His ways are greater than ours. You know, in here it speaks of the sin of the Amorites, the sin of the nations that lived in Canaan where God was going to bring his people. And we could justify some of it. Like if I were to tell you the practices of those nations and how wicked it was, we can, we can, we can imagine why we need to do away with uh, that, that um, sort of sin and those practices and things happening in this place. However, still I find myself a little bit challenged by the concepts, especially of the taking of the land of Canaan. What is beautiful to see in here is how God promised to bring about good for his people, even in the midst of, of this hor- horrific slavery, that God promises that Israel would become numerous 
as numerous as the sand is, is one of the expressions used. But Israel would become numerous in Egypt while they were in slavery. God promises that Israel would become wealthy. And at the end, as Israel, as the people of Israel are coming out of Egypt, they they basically plunder, peacefully plunder uh, the Egyptians. They ask for for gold and silver, and they're given all that stuff. And God also promises that Israel would be given the land of Canaan as their own. So though this is hard, though we have a lot of questions, we can see how God is faithful to his covenant. And God will is, is there. God sees his people. God knows what's happening. And God is working for their good, even though the timeline is kind of hard. <laughs> Absolutely, and that injustice and uh, suffering will be um, part of it. Yeah, absolutely. So um, then God lays out for Moses, so this is my plan, and it's kind of a paradoxical statement. He says, I will rescue my people, and then in the very end here, he says, so I am sending you to my people, right? I will rescue my people, so I am sending you. Have you ever been called to a task far greater than your ability? far beyond what you can accomplish. I was when my first child was born. Oh my goodness, that was a terrifying day in my life. It's like, I just realized you, I am not equipped for this task, right? Uh, and I said to God, why me? All the things Moses is about. No, not that's not true at all. Um, but I do absolutely remember this moment of fear, like, I, I mean, of of panic. Like, I don't know if I can do this. And Moses experiences that sort of thing here in verse 11. Verse 11, but Moses said to God, who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the Israelites out of Egypt? Who am I? Pharaoh, one of the most powerful people, probably the most powerful person in the world in this time. And I'm going to go and free our people from Egypt. You know, and, and and if you think about the history, he grew up in his household and now is a shepherd, which, by the way, the Egyptians despised shepherds. So it's like the lowliest of the low in Egyptian in Egyptian uh, thinking that that's a in my in one sense, I'm like, that's a reasonable question. Who is Moses to do this? You know, have you ever been faced with a tough decision and you just wanted God to tell you exactly what to do? I know I, I that's happened to me numerous times, but one time specifically we were we were newly married and I moved here to the Tri-Cities and I had grown up overseas and so I was still getting used to living in the United States and really had no clue what I wanted to do as a career. And so I was like, God, what do you want me to do? Like right now, like what kind of job should I go? And, and I remember I heard nothing from God. Like I have no idea. And I remember in my frustration praying to God, can you just like audibly tell me exactly what job I'm supposed to apply for? Like I just, I know you can do it like a voice. I need a voice from heaven. Just tell me what to do and I'll do it. And it's not lost on me here in this story that God does that for Moses. An audible voice and says, here's what I want you to do. And Moses is like, I don't, I don't know if I can do that. 
And I wonder if God had told me exactly what to do, if I would have also been like, uh, I'm not sure about that, God. Can we rethink that plan? <laughs> Often God's plans are bigger and beyond and more challenging than we would ever take on ourselves. So, so Moses is questioning. He begins the questioning. He's like, I don't know. Who am I to go? And God responds to him, I will be with you. And this will be the sign to you um, that it is I who have sent you. When you have brought the people out of Egypt, you will worship God on this mountain. Again, he's standing on Mount uh, uh, Horeb or Sinai. He's standing there and God says, this will be the sign. You will lead the people out and you'll worship here. And, and at that time, they'll re- restore their, renew their covenant with God and all of that. God responds, uh, this is not about, I'm not sending you because of who you are. I'm sending you because of who I am. God is clarifying, I will be the power behind this mission. And in fact, he'll go on to give some more clarity in that. In verse 13, Moses said to God, suppose I go to the Israelites and say to them, the God of your fathers has sent me to you. And they ask me, what is his name? Then what shall I tell them? God said to Moses, I am who I am. This is what you are to say to the Israelites. I am has sent has sent me to you. God said to Moses, say to the Israelites, the Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob has sent me to you. This is my name forever. The name you shall call me from generation to generation. All right. This is a fascinating text, and we're going to nerd out here for just a minute uh, as as we explore this, because it's a pivotal thing. Now, in Israelite culture, names matter, and names mean things, right? They're, they're incredibly important and significant. And so here, Moses asks God, so who, what do I call you? Like, if they ask who sent, what is your name, God, okay? And uh, I think it's remarkable what plays out here, and, and I hope I can do this justice. I spent time this week just laboring over what, what parts of this do we bring out. Um, so God chooses his name, and I want to preface this understanding. Remember, this is written in Hebrew, um, and there are limitations and challenges in language and translation, right? We only catch a glimpse of maybe what it would be, what would be understood and heard um, by an original audience uh, listening to this or, or reading this text as an ancient Israelite. And uh, nearly all of Hebrew language is engendered. That is, all nouns, all things uh, have a gender. And many languages in the world still today are like that. English isn't that same way, so we miss some of the things that's happening in the text when we read it in English. So uh, trees or rocks would be masculine or feminine uh, in at least word and, and, and transversely kind of in idea. And so, in a minute, later in the text, uh, God will say, I am the Lord. This is the word Yahweh, which is what Israel would come to call God. And that is a masculine noun. Uh, God says, I am uh, Yahweh that is sending you. But prior to that, as he first gives his name, there's a little bit of a play on words. Um, the word he uses is um, Eye. Okay, 
And this is a gender-neutral title, which is nearly impossible to do in the Hebrew language. When Moses says, what is your name? What will I call you? Uh, God goes out of his way uh, to describe himself in the most neutral terms possible, which I think is really curious, and I think it's significant on a number of levels. The first and probably most important um, in the ears of an Israelite person is that as God describes his name in this manner, they would recognize that he is describing himself in starkly different terms than the gods of the nations, okay? So the nations, Egypt and many other nations at this time, would have uh, heroic masculine warrior gods that they worship, right? Notice how starkly different God describes himself than those warrior masculine gods that nearly every nation would have and worship. And he describes himself in very different terms than the incredibly fertile uh, goddess that they would worship in their nations. God takes all of that out of the conversation, and he says, I am, right? I am. That is what he wants to be known as. And additionally, in the Hebrew language, we would recognize that, that this is a kind of a continuing state of being. I am who I have been, and I will be who I will be. This is how God defines himself and names himself. He describes himself in the simplest and yet most vast terms that the Hebrew language could afford him. That's really powerful. <laughs> I am. I exist. So, the story continues, and I'm not going to read verses 16 through 22, but I'll kind of give a little summary of it. God basically summarizes for Moses his plan of what's going to happen. So he says, go to the elders of Israel first and tell them that I am has sent you, that I've seen you, I've seen your hardship, and I'm coming to rescue you, and I will give you the land that I promised to give you. And the elders will listen to you, and then with the elders, I want you to go to to the Pharaoh, and I want you to tell the Pharaoh that uh, please let us go on a three-day journey into the wilderness so that we can make sacrifices to our God, and the Pharaoh's going to say no. The Pharaoh's not going to let you go, and so I will stretch out my hand, and I will perform mighty works, mighty signs, so that the Pharaoh will let you go. And when you do go, you will not go empty-handed, but ask them for their, for their wealth, and they will gladly give you their wealth. So he lays out the big-picture plan for Moses. All right, so we zoom out. Moses, 40 years a shepherd, just as called by God on Mount Horeb. I'm going to lead my people out of Egypt through you. I want you to go. As we zoom out and, and look at the big picture and how does this apply in our lives, there's, I think, a real challenge in application in stories this grand in Scripture. One of the challenges that we face in a text like this is like, I haven't heard the audible voice of God to go, so I don't. maybe it's not for me. Or uh, we look at a story this vast and say, I couldn't do the thing that Moses would do. So here's what I want to do for us in the last couple minutes today. We're just going to let Scripture speak to us, and I want us to listen to the very real uh, understanding, the, the reality that we are a called people. As followers of Jesus, we are not just saved for our own salvation, our own hope. We are a people that are called to participate in the good work that God is doing in this world. So listen as Scripture describes for us our calling. 
Now, there's no burning bush in this moment. If you want, I, we can set a tumbleweed on fire out here. You know, let's not. It let's will not burn up very quickly. No, um, there's no burning bush. But please, in a sober moment, would we listen to what Scripture has to say about our calling? First Peter 2.9, but you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession, that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness and into wonderful light. You are the light of the world. A town built on a hill cannot be hidden. Neither do people light a lamp and put it under a bowl. Instead, they put it on its stand. And it gives light to everyone in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others, that they may see your good deeds and glorify your Father in heaven. The words of Jesus, go. Make disciples of every nation, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. And surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. More words from Jesus. A new command I give you. Love one another. As I have loved you, so you must love one another. By this everyone will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. You are a chosen people meant to be a light in this world, to share the good news and hope with people around us and to live out the way of love, the way of Jesus. You see, we are a called people. And if only in all the questions and concerns that we have, just like Moses did when he was called, in, in all those questions and concerns, if we would truly take to heart the fact that God has a purpose for each of us, God has a purpose for us communally, God has a purpose. He has called us to so much more than just making it through this life right? He has called us to so much more than success in the corporate world. He has called us to partner in his good work in this world. We are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a light in this world, making disciples, sharing good news with the world around us, and demonstrating his love. May we, like Moses, with all our hesitation, concerns, and questions, Lean in, step into, and walk in sync with the Spirit as we participate in His good work. Let's pray. Dear God, we thank you for this extraordinary calling that you have placed on each of our lives. Lord, to know you and to be known. Lord, to be a light for you as we walk in your light, that your light would shine through us, Lord, and that we would partner with you as you heal people, as you restore your creation, Lord, that we would partner with you in that work of transformation and healing and bringing about good. Lord, I pray this week that you would open our eyes and that your spirit would just nudge us that we might see in real time as we go about our days, in real time where you are calling us and how you are calling us to be a part of your mission and your work. 
God, we thank you that you are this God of tremendous love and also tremendous invitation that you, you don't want to do it by yourself, but that you have called us to join you. And so, Lord, Spirit, teach us. Teach us what it looks like to live surrendered lives, to live lives of listening to you, and lives of obedience, of following you, even when the call, what you're calling us to, seems overwhelming or challenging or impossible. Lord, may we continue to lean on you, to walk in your light, and to spread that light wherever we go. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen.